You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. Do you think the ABC's left wing? Don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am, streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody out there, and g'day, Jordan. How are you? I'm really good. It's uh, really nice to be back in the studio. I I went down the coast for the first time, down to Mornington Peninsula. You know, the whole experience of it reminded me of this little section of Canberra where it is just embassies, and you get to a point where you can't tell what the difference is between an embassy and just someone's home, (laughs) and a lot of Sorrento... A lot of Port Sea, a lot of, you know, Frankston, to some extent, it, it really gave me that impression. Um, not sure how I feel about it, but it was a, it was a good weekend nonetheless. Yeah, yeah and it's an yeah. interesting coastline, isn't it? It's, I was talking to... Uh, it's very beautiful. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was talking to someone the other day about how they were... Oh, well, well, I went to the IMAT. Who, because they've got this new film, uh, which is about the Barrier Reef. Mm-hmm. And uh, the person I went with uh, was uh, telling me about their experiences of being in Cairns and, and doing a bit of scuba diving and how it was uh, warm water. And that just freaked her right out because, <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, there's no such thing as warm water down here. <laughs> mm, mm, mm. Yeah, uh, if you want to go off to IMAX and uh, have a look at that film, it's actually very interesting. It's always beautiful to uh, immerse yourself in 3D, especially when you're underwater and you've never been scuba diving at all. Mm. So the things you see, it's quite beautiful, quite mm. beautiful. Sounds interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You were telling me about uh, something, uh, a very interesting new uh, 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 version of uh, getting up the nose of CEOs in big yeah, corporations. Yeah, so I've got to tip my hat to Galilee Blockade. Uh, they're really responsible for pushing back against Adani, um, and they've, they've sort of drifted off the radar a bit as, you know, they're, they're, there's a lot going on behind the scenes in preventing um, Adani from going ahead and the construction of it going ahead. Um, but they're still pushing for this. And one tactic that they've just had uh, quite a few members engage in is just so creative. And I thought, you know, I'd, I'd take a moment to share it. You know, these little uh, calendar invite files, they end in .ics. There's a lot of programs that generate these uh, and they extend from things like Google Calendar right through to Zoom. And Anyway, they don't take too much effort to set up, usually about a minute or two per invite. And if you send them to an email client, the email client will just go ahead and read this file regardless of whether or not you even open the email. And this is really, really awesome. It means that you can just send a blank email with an ICS invite to the CEO of Adani. Um, I forget his first name, but uh, Mr. Dow who has been essentially having a whinge about this process 
because he's gone on the record to say that it, it you know this is he's harassment this been... is harassment to the ex- extent where his calendar is unusable because he's been receiving all these invites yes it's such a clever tactic and to to quote his exact push um Dow calls on the government to make an online release of personal information without express authorization of the individuals illegal um that's a bit they'll rich. have to they'll have to legislate they'll have to legislate yeah funny that i I really think that you know privacy is obviously more important when uh, you're the one who's being deprived and um it, it, it's maybe in the backs of our minds but I'd like to remember that Adani literally had a private investigator photograph the nine-year-old daughter of an activist while she was walked to her school by her father. Um, and that was on the, you know, far more aggressive push, um, you know, with the Stop Adani campaign. So, hey, you know, so privacy for the rich and, uh, you know, tricklings for the poor, apparently. A, a suki lala. That's the absolute suki lala of the week. Featuring world-changing documentaries aimed at inspiring a better world. This year's Transitions Film Festival covers themes of art, activism, climate change, social innovation, epic architecture, and the future of our planet. Transitions Film Festival, available virtually from February the 26th to March the 15th, online and nationwide. The Transitions Film Festival is a 3CR supporter. Last week was uh, a uh, special memorial for uh, uh, Jack Mundy, the great and fearless uh, union fighter uh, from Sydney, who was uh, part of the initiating group of, for the Green Bands that saved uh, Centennial Park, for example, in Sydney. The whole idea of Centennial Park not existing because some rapacious developers thought it was a better idea and a government, a, a crooked government, thought it was a good idea for the future of Sydney just uh, is gobsmacking. I don't know if you've been to Centennial Park, but it's No, lovely. no, I haven't, I haven't personally. Um, but that being said, I'm well aware of the, uh, the BLF and the, uh, the, the Green Bands through that time. And a lot of people still point to that as a really important piece of Australian activism um, and, and unionism, really. Well, yeah, yeah it is. Yeah. Anyway, uh, I was very lucky because uh, Vivian Langford from the Climate Action Show here on 3CR uh, sent me. She she lives in Sydney and comes down, uh, commutes. That's how important the climate is. Uh, <laughs> no, she doesn't fly. She uh, goes on the train. Uh, uh, the um, this is her report. This is part of her report uh, from that memorial. Uh, if you want to catch uh, Vivian's show, it's a climate action show, through at five pm Mondays. Uh, she does it with uh, Kurt Johnson, great pair of activists and here's what she sent me. A state memorial was held at Sydney Town Hall on the 10th of March 2021 for Jack Mundy AO. My name is Vivian Langford and I was there for Radio 3CR and Radio Skid Row. The green bands imposed on heritage buildings and bushland in Sydney were a glorious moment and the idea was copied around the world. We start with the voice of Jack Mundy himself in 2003. It's an archival record from the city of Sydney 
and we thank Siobhan McHugh, who made this recording. Of course, the Vietnam War, the, war, the, the fight against the A&H bombs. The left-wing unions have a rich tradition in this country of fighting for things, but the builders' labourers went a bit further in the sense that when the women... I'd made a statement that in a modern society, unions should have the right to be concerned about the end result of their labour, that things wider than wages and conditions were important, that, of course, whatever unions exist, wages and conditions are of paramount importance, but increasingly, what is the good of winning higher wages and better conditions if we live in cities devoid of parks, denuded of trees? And the quality of life was not just a cliché, it's a reality. And strangely enough, at that time, A.V. Jennings, a Melbourne-based development company, had moved in and bought land in the fashionable suburb of Hunters Hill with the idea of building luxurious units, apartments for the very rich. And the people in that area uh, rose up against it and had a couple of meetings. And the driving force, force was a group called the Battlers for Kelly's Bush, and they were all women, middle-upper-class women. And as a very last resort, they came to the builders' labourers on the basis of things that I'd said about the importance of the environment. And uh, we went out there and uh, spoke to the people, and we said to them, well, if you can show that it's not just a handful of people, but it is a feeling of the people in Hunters Hill, we will take it back to the union. So they had a meeting, over 600 people came to it, and the women came back to the union leadership and spoke. And it was interesting, when they'd left, some of the builders' labourers on the exec said, Jesus Christ, what are we doing? We haven't even got a members in Hunters Hill, let alone, you know. Others of us argued that whether it's Liverpool, Penrith or Willara, if we're fair dinkum, about open space being necessary, and they had a valid argument we should support them. A.V. Jennings announced that they would ignore the ban and use non-union labour. And at the time, we had, as I told you before, we had won the confidence of the workers. Over 90% of all workers carrying out builders' labourers' work were in a union. And the work we covered from unskilled work, uh, doing the footings, digging, doing the concreting, doing the steel work, going up high on the building with riggers and scaffolders. But all of that work was covered by builders' labourers. <clears throat> so when it came to bans, we had a lot of bargaining power, whether commencement of buildings or whether stopping the demolition of buildings. So we had enormous power. And at the time, there were something like 11 unions in the building industry from all the different trades had their own unions. And the builders' labourers, of course, was an amorphous group that stretches from the skilled to the unskilled. And so we had a lot of power and the union was very strong. And so we responded by calling a meeting on one of A.V. Jennings' jobs in North Sydney. And the workers decided that if one blade of grass or one tree was touched on Kelly's Bush, that half-completed building would remain forever as a monument to Kelly's Bush. And that really set the cat amongst the pigeons. Uh, and uh, after, of course, we put the ban on, uh, it was called a black ban because uh, a black band has connotations of workers uh, jacking up jobs to lift their wages and conditions. But later on, and I think this was a turning point, when we called them green bands, it had a more 
noble argument. We were there. We weren't. We weren't just trying to increase the wage and condition of the workers. We were looking on a wider angle at the quality of life issues. And who thought of the the word green ban? Me, Jack. Good on you. Give me something, you know. <laughs> so, but I think it was it was uh, it was more uh, reflective of what we were doing. As I went along the line outside the town hall, of very dignified people waiting to go in to celebrate the life of Jack Mundy, I learned that his legacy was not just in the buildings of the Rocks area, in Kelly's Bush and in the old churches and parts of Sydney's heritage that were preserved by the Builders Labourers Federation. People remembered his personal legacy of generosity, solidarity and inclusiveness as he expanded the horizons of the unions beyond their work uh, conditions and wages to creating the sort of society that we all would like to live in. We need uh, a Jack Mundy as he was then, as he remained. He never changed, was still fighting. I was on Parramatta Council until 2008. Jack would be on the phone to me regularly talking about saving buildings and he'd be well and truly in the fight for Willow Grove. This brings back memories. In 1969, I was about 17 years old. Uh, Jack had lived in Guildford, like most great people, and uh, there was down the local pub, there was a rank-and-file uh, fundraiser, and there were so many of people who worked in the industry who were there that night, and I was a young kid, and it was great, but uh, his contribution, both the environment and the broader political thing, the union movement, uh, the whole democratisation of unions, uh, it's it's so crucial. Yeah. Do you think it's got harder to do that sort of thing, like green bands now? Do you think it's harder? Why? Well, the workforce is uh, um, the workforce is now splintered. There's not large factories. There's not union strength. There's not solidarity. There's not people reinforcing each other. It's very difficult, and uh, people are on higher purchase mortgages, etc. Uh, the, there are great impediments to struggle, and and uh, we're in far more difficult now for him. Yeah. I think Jack was a legend in New South Wales. Uh, and I think it's interesting that his, uh, his notoriety and the work that he did around green bands and leading some of that uh, protection now of our history has resonated with young people and they love him like us oldies. So. We can still go to the buildings, can't we, and the places? Well, we can, and that's what's so enjoyable to go past, and he definitely deserves recognition today and more than that and I'm pleased to see that there's going to be a film that will I hope do justice to what he's done but he's done a lot for this city a lot. Hi I only met him once and he was so welcoming and really keen for the next generation to continue with what he'd done. About Jack Mundy's legacy if he was here today a young man again would it be harder now to do green bands and why? Well, I was lucky enough to hear him speaking at a forum about 20 years ago when he addressed this very issue, and back then he said it would be much harder. So it could only be even worse now with the awful industrial laws that we have in this country, which don't permit secondary boycotts and community action of that kind. What, what is your memory of him or your legacy that he's... I was very lucky to work for the CFMEU uh, about 20, uh, 10 to 20 years ago, getting to meet him and going to see the Kelly's Bush 
women. I went to the lunch 30 years ago with Jack, so that's my memory. Jack was a great man, and I worked for Jack as, to, as an organiser when he was the secretary of the union. And uh, he did all everything uh, dem democratically and, uh, and gave everybody uh, an opportunity, not like we have today. Jack Mundy was an uh, ecological socialist till his dying day. He was uh, always supporting people to take action and encouraging people. Uh, so he, he strongly advocated unity uh, in the society for that. And uh, I think he wasn't despairing when I think about how he approached things. He had enormous confidence in people and I think that's come from his brilliant experience in the builders' labourers, you know, from the 1950s through to now. So uh, I think Sydney's really blessed by having that heritage and uh, let's celebrate it today. I see Jack Mundy in the buildings every time I go into certain buildings. I know it was because of the bands that he was part of, that they're there. But what about culturally, you know, in our minds? Because it's so hard now to protest, to do anything. And uh, the developers seem to have taken over just as well as these little old buildings that are here. What culturally do you think is left? Well, I think we have got a lot of our cityscape and some of our landscape because of the Builders Labourers and Jack Mundy. And I think we should always uh, encourage people to recognise that when they open their eyes and move around uh, New South Wales and the city. But uh, in the culture, uh, obviously we've got a, a completely rapacious government that's actually slogan is, uh, you know, New South Wales, a new state of business. It's not, not a state of people. So, you know, that's, I think that's what Jack was referring to, that it's, you know, much harder now. But that doesn't mean it's impossible. The people can really change everything, and Jack knew that. Uh, so Amanda Tattersall, Jack Money's legacy is both ginormous and incredibly intimate, and I think that that's what was so powerful about him. He actually carried his values and his politics to every scale of his life. So obviously, like, we look down the streets of Sydney and it wouldn't look quite like this but for Jack Money. You know, he had, he literally physically transformed the city through his radical conception of unionism and its connection to the natural environment. You know, it's just extraordinary and it lives in me today with how I work in the climate movement. You know, I'm working on, on trying to make that connection between economics and climate too. But it's also really personal. Jack was a really kind and generous person. Whenever I asked him to speak at anything, he would come. He spoke to students I was teaching. He spoke to the Sydney Alliance as we were setting up. He wrote a squib on my book. He just always said yes because he actually just really loved people and cared for people, which is fundamental to his, his values. In terms of how it would be different today... So I think Jack Mundy would be leading the climate transition. He would be front and centre in regional communities trying to work out how working class people can help lead a response to climate change that allows them to have a sense of control over their economic, social and cultural life and not be taken advantage of by the big developers of today, which is the fossil fuel companies. And so I think it would be different. I think the places in which he would be fighting would be different. But the idea of a unified struggle between, as he said, the working class and the enlightened middle class would remain the same. I think the world is extremely poorer because of Jack's death and the values that he stood up for. Yeah, uh, they seemed really vague and fragmented at the moment, yeah. What would you say lives on in the culture? I know the buildings are here, but in the culture, like in all of our memories, there's a certain type of being, isn't yeah, there? Yeah, I think that's what I'm talking about, the cultures. The buildings, I don't really 
uh, they're not relevant for me, but I think, I think in people's hearts, I think having prophets of our time is really important. And I think Jack was a prophet of our time and he challenged the inequities in our society and stood up for the working person. I think that does live on, yeah. Uh, look, Jack was a remarkable person and a remarkable figure for uh, Sydney and Australia and the world. And I, I, mean, I think he brought a new way of thinking about the future of a kind of ecological socialism that gave great hope and inspired millions of people in one way or another. It's, it was a real privilege that uh, he was in our community and in our city um, and touched the world the way he did. Look, I, I was lucky to know Jack later in his life and I think it was incredible how generous he was, even with all the things that happen when you're older and when his health was failing him. He was always there and solid, inspiring new generation of 17-year-olds, 18-year-olds, 19-year-olds, 30-year-olds, telling them about how they could be involved in a politics that was about people and generosity and not just power and elites. He's, everybody has been saying to me, look, um, he never gave up and he was kind and he was generous. He, he would come to anything if you invited him to speak or so on. But he himself said on the archival recordings I've heard, you know, it's just so much harder now. You know, what we're up against is harder. And especially with the climate change issue, you know, I'm sure people have said he'd be front and centre of that if he was with us today. What do you think's changed that's making it hard? Do you agree that it's harder or it's always just the same battle? I think the scale of our wealth and also the scale of the catastrophe make those two things very hard, shaking people into action when, when actually we are much more comfortable and wealthy than we were when Jack was a younger activist. Uh, but then faced with the scale of catastrophe that is so urgent, yes, that is harder, but you know, days like today remind you that um, we've got to be part of that challenge or nothing's going to change. Thank you. What's your memory? Uh, my family, um, the company, Jane, uh, I'm Amelina. Uh, my family's company with my mother and her brothers, my uncles, were the developers that wanted to um, destroy the rocks. And uh, I'm very grateful to Jack Mundy um, that the rocks were saved. And my generation, my siblings and my cousins, um, all support Jack Mundy and the work and we're grateful, very grateful for his heritage work. Yeah. Thank you for that comment because it just shows that we all can change, doesn't it? Yes, yeah. Oh, look, I'm just devastated. I'm from down Union Shellhaven and that and um, Jack, my father held him in such esteem. My father's 86. He's up in Cross Harbour. He couldn't make it today because of ill health. We're a massive union family and Jack was like a hero in the forged generations. How did he inspire you? Like, what did he stick by? Well, I was 16 when I joined the Commonwealth Bank and I was in the head office. And the first day I said, I want to sign up for the union. And I was on the fifth floor and they said, what? And they said, yes, that's what I want to do. And I worked with all, you know, the bosses of, you know, lending in that and that day. And they said, why? I said, because I want my rights. And so that sort of didn't go down too well. But that's what I did. And it's inspired me from then to sort of um, want a fair go for sort of everybody. So I'm involved with Union Shellhaven. And only the other night we were talking at our Union Shellhaven meeting. 
about um, we have 26-27% youth unemployment and the young kids there, because they're involved with Vincenia High School, and they're so desperate for part-time work. You know, they're working for $12, $15 an hour. You know, so it's um, people like Jack trying to, you know, early on get workers' rights. It's kids like that who we're trying to, you know, get involved and join a union, but they're so desperate for their um, part-time work to be able to afford to go to uni that we have to turn them around and get them to join a union. And Jack sort of, you know, fought for those things. And so we were educated at a young age by my father, Bill Hark, who's up there today, hoping to watch this on live stream. Jack was an inspiration to all of us because of his socialist politics and his environmentalism. And a lot of things in Sydney, Centennial Park, all the old buildings, Kelly's Bush would not be here if it hadn't been for Jack and the people he worked with together. Well, I mean, the Green Bands were historic and they inspired Green Bands all over the... in the rest of Australia and all over the world. And I think it was historic that he brought together the union movement and the environment movement to struggle together uh, for a better future. My name's Rachel Evans and I met Jack Mundy when I first arrived here in Sydney around 2003. I, I heard about his legacy and I went to visit him in his home and got him to sign a Green Left. So I'm a journalist with Green Left and... The thing that really inspired me because was very involved in the marriage equality campaign was the pink bands. But finding out about the green bands, the black bands, the pink bands, and, and you know, this was seminal and trailblazing, and he's an amazing man. The other thing that we did with Jack was we helped the campaign to save Sydney College of the Arts in Callan Park, and so we occupied there for 65 days, and he came to visit. And so it was a fantastic, you know, lots of art students and... Um, and also the Maritime Union of Australia, they were very involved. But yeah, capitalism is voracious and it's privatising everything and all the green spaces in the... Even the suburbs are being transformed by these horror large apartment blocks. And so the green ban example is really important for the modern day. And we're involved now in a fight to, to save Glebe and Everly public housing and that fight we hope is going to involve a green ban so yeah and now there's a green ban against willow groves demolition so it's actually what what he's done and he's a he was a communist and that's the other thing that's really important about his legacy to remember and ingest um, that he was an anti-capitalist and he was organizing with working people and the poor to make the change the grassroots organizing that makes the change that we need so and it's a new world. Actually, Bondi Pavilion was another fight he spoke there. So for the young generation and the middle-aged generation, which I'm part of, we, we, need, to, we need to learn the lessons of uh, Jack Mundy's legacy and then we, to really, really, really pay tribute, we've got a, we've got a fight to win and win. This is Stephen Pigram from up Broomway, Yauru country, and it's great to be down in Melbourne and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio. Been here for a long time. You're back with Annie and Jordan on Solidarity Breakfast. <clears throat> Bless you. 
Yes, sorry about that. Um, yeah, uh, thanks very much, Vivian, for that uh, taking us to the memorial held on March the tenth for the great Jack Mundy, and obviously uh, mm. deeply missed. Mm. But as they say, the fight is still to be won. And uh, I said, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, on um, the eighth of March, of course, was International Working Women's Day. Mm-hmm. And uh, I went to the rally that was held in Melbourne and there were some fierce speeches, some of them fierce. Um, and the one I'm going to play you today, or there's two, uh, these people were stars. Every time you go to an event, there's generally star speeches because, um, you know, you're sitting there in your mind and you're uh, editing them in your own mind. Mm-hmm. I don't know mm-hmm. if the people who in the crowd are, but I am. <laughs> <laughs> of course, and, of course. and I'd yeah. have to say that uh, these two uh, young women were were uh, the stars of the show. And uh, so we're going to hear from them. And uh, re- a reminder that on uh, Monday, this coming Monday, Monday the 14th, Ooh, no, no, 16th, 16th, no, 15th. 15th. Uh, <laughs> oh, isn't, isn't that the Ides of March? Yeah. Anyway, yeah. The, uh, <laughs> right. the, there's uh, the March for Justice, which is mm-hmm. uh, going to be held at uh, 12 o'clock at uh, the um, 12 to 2, and it's uh, the State Library steps in Melbourne. Anyway, it's going to be right across the country. There, it's oh, In Perth, it's going to be on Sunday, but uh, uh, just to be different. But there's uh, not just uh, capital cities, but in uh, provincial cities and small towns. And this is in response to the uh, uh, re- uh, allegations that have come out of uh, Parliament and uh, sexual abuse. It's mm. uh, obviously been a very uh, uh, hard time for people triggering uh you know, th- I mean, this is a this is a really big issue, and uh, sli- s- uh, sweeping it under the carpet is probably not a very good idea. And people are coming out onto the streets on uh, Monday. Yeah, it's good. This is at least provoking a lot of attention, and um, yeah, more power to, to um, the the March for Justice um, in particular, because uh, yeah, this uh, this culture's been in the Parliament House for a very long time. It, we've known this for ages and ages and ages. I think in some respects, we here at 3CR, we're preaching to choir almost in, in, in some respects. Well, <coughs> the so, thing about yeah. it, no, but the thing about it is, is about uh, arguing your case, as it were, True. because um, obviously uh, basic rights uh, are being muddied by the concept that uh, y- uh, a, a false... Uh, dichotomy between genders, Mm. um, you know, because there's so much resentment and pain and Mm. uh, fear uh, and an imbalance of power that's being expressed. And that motivates the need to to get out. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, so listen to some of these speeches because uh, they were pretty interesting, I have to say. Let's do it. Our next speaker is Jack. Jack is a founding member and delegate of the Renters and Housing Union, a member-run union of renters and people in precarious housing. Formed in 2020 in response to the mass unemployment and housing insecurity caused by COVID-19, a proud queer, feminist, unionist and anti-capitalist, they have been active in various campaigns, collectives and unions for over a decade fighting for climate action, gender equality, workers' rights, 
mental health care and LGBTQI plus liberation as a community campaigner, union delegate and miscellaneous rat bag. And I think Beck is also joining Jack. Beck is a single mother who has worked as a support worker for young women and families experiencing domestic violence, homelessness and housing insecurity. She is passionate about using her professional and lived experiences with these issues to help others and transform the systems that keep people trapped in cycles of violence, poverty and repression. Jack and Beck. Hi everybody. Thank you so much for being here. Um, thank you to all of the other speakers and to the International Women's Day Collective for organising this, as well as the Auslan interpreters doing a fantastic job. Um, I'd like to once again acknowledge that we're gathered today on stolen and unceded Wurundjeri land, um, particularly because we'll be talking about housing justice and this colony has been removing Indigenous people from their homes and kicking them off their land for over 200 years. So I'd like to also thank so much the Indigenous feminists who are here today, extending their solidarity with all women and gender diverse people and remind uh, fellow settlers that we need to be more active in extending our solidarity back to Indigenous women and Indigenous struggles in general. And I'd also like to be very, very clear that when I say women, I mean all women. Trans women are women. They face misogyny as well as transphobia. They are our sisters and we stand with them. And I also know that there is a lot of anger here today over the last couple of weeks. I'm angry as well. I'm hurt and I'm frustrated and I'm deeply, deeply unsurprised. Um, I think that the Latinx feministas put it best in their chant when they say, the oppressive state is a macho rapist. Because this last week or so has really pulled back the mask on the systems that we live under, and it's shown that it is the police, and it is the judges, and it is the state itself that are the root causes of women's oppression. And on, on today, I would like to focus uh, like to not lose focus that and confuse the individual success of some women with progress towards the collective liberation of all women. Especially because so often, far too often, the women that do become successful under these oppressive systems make it to the top and then pull the ladder up behind them, leaving the rest of us stranded below. So I'm not here to celebrate the handful of successful women and ignore the systems that they have become a part of. I am not here to celebrate a woman who has become a property investor and a landlord, but evicts a woman for doing sex work to support herself because $40 a day is not enough to live on. Especially because sex work is real work and being a landlord is not. And I'm not here to celebrate Serena Russo profiting off the misery of people living on that $40 a day under, under Centrelink, Centrelink poverty wages. There is a special place in hell for women with power who force other women to choose 
between either paying the rent or feeding their families or between enduring the horrors of domestic abuse and becoming homeless. And there is a special place in hell for women that call victim survivors of sexual assault lying cows. So we need to understand it's not just about the individuals, but it's about the system that keeps women in poverty relative to men. It's the same system that makes indigenous women in this country the most incarcerated uh, group of people on the planet. And it's the same shame, yeah. And it's the same system that means that older women are currently the fastest growing proportion of people living in homelessness. And it is the same system that means that only less than 1% of rental properties in major cities in this country are affordable to somebody on welfare payments. And that system is the same exact system that means the corridors of power in this country and around the world are lined with rapists and their enablers. And it's the same system that tells us that the path to success and security in this country is to buy up as many chunks of stolen land as possible and then rent back the human right of housing and security to other poorer people in order to turn a profit. And that's the same system that at the end of this month, when the COVID ban on evictions from rental properties ends, is going to see thousands of people across this country out of, out of luck, out of home with nowhere to go and no safety net to catch them. It's colonialism, it is white supremacy, it's patriarchy, transphobia, homophobia, ableism, and above all, it is capitalism. Because none of us are free, while any of us are being crushed by a system that works exactly as it was intended to work. And that is by lifting up a powerful minority and pushing the rest of us down. I'm gonna hand over to Beck now, who's gonna talk a little bit more about housing insecurity uh, and how it contributes to cycles of poverty and inequality. Thank you. Thank you, Jack. So I just wanna be clear that insecure housing isn't over there. Okay. So insecure housing isn't, does this skirting board make me look fat? It's the difference between working the same underpaid, soul-crushing job for the next decade or so, or returning to study to further your education or pursue a personal goal. It's the difference between your child having fond memories of the family home and then being the new kid in school seven times over. It's the difference between safety and stability or staying with an abusive partner or housemate because it's less daunting or seemingly impossible than getting you out. I have worked with numerous young families, particularly mothers like myself, who have struggled with housing insecurity for years and probably always will. Many of us have ended up homeless multiple times with their children because real estate agents don't think we're deserving of housing, or as they would say, we're not financially viable as tenants. Yes. Through my personal and professional experience, I've learned that women will stay in domestic violence relationships because getting a safe home on their own is, is impossible. When seeking assistance to get out of their situation, they're referred to women's refuges and hostels and told they can go on a 10-year wait list for public housing. But if they do manage to get into a rental in that time, then they're no longer eligible and they can reapply for that list when they're facing homelessness again. Unaffordable housing is a lack of choice. 
You don't get to choose which area you live in, where your kids go to school, and which jobs you can apply for. So often you don't get to choose not to live with other people. You actually have to gamble with your own and your children's safety in order to have somewhere to live. Having a lack of choice leads to immense amounts of stress, pressure, and shame. This stress leads to desperation, and desperation is expensive. What's the difference between a $20 pair of shoes and a $200 pair of shoes? It's spending what you can afford now on something you know will never last because you can't afford long-lasting quality. And that applies directly to housing. Sure, we could put a $20,000 deposit on a house and pay that off over time to have something secure and constant for a family instead of renting, except we can't because a two to three bedroom home costs more per month than the total monthly income of so many, even with what's left the of the current coronavirus supplement. And there's still, and there's still the pesky extra cost of shit like food, water, and electricity. Personally, I know it's unlikely that my son and I will ever not need housemates. How many of you here today are renters? How many of you are fed up with having to jump through hoops, bend over backwards, and share invasive personal information to be assessed to maybe be deemed worthy to have a black mold-covered roof over your heads? with doors and windows that don't close or open properly and foundations that sink in opposite directions and there's probably something wrong with the plumbing about two or three times a year. How many people here today have experienced feelings of hopelessness because you know that your lot in life, whether it remains the same, improves or degrades, depends solely on the seal of approval of some bureaucrat at every turn? Really? But the world is your oyster. Except this oyster was pulled out of a bin and your choices are risk food poisoning or don't eat today. But it seems fair though, right? There are currently countless people of all genders, cultures and backgrounds fighting community housing services over attempted rent increases and evictions during this moratorium. Like Louise Good, a 65-year-old woman who has been evicted from her home of 29 years there she is, by a supposed community housing organization. Common Equity Housing Limited, we are all looking at you right now and your wrongdoings will be exposed. To get a private rental, you have to make yourself look like you're the best you've ever been. To get into public housing, you have to make it look like you've never been lower. We shouldn't have to beg for shelter for somewhere to feel safe, for a home. And when we ask for help or we go public, public to expose these inequalities, these injustices, we should not have to divulge all of our personal struggles and hardships to indulge the incessant need for poverty porn. Affordable housing is not a privilege, it is a right. It is a right that we fight for and that we all have to fight for because towing the line and doing what we're told is not how we got to where we are today. We do have weapons in this fight though, and those weapons are solidarity and collective action. We formed the Renters and Housing Union in 2020 to fight for everybody's right to safe, 
secure and accessible housing that keeps them safe and meets their needs. Because there can never be gender equality without housing justice. So in the spirit, in the spirit of the International Working Women's Day event that was first held on this day 90 years ago, organized by the women of the unemployed workers movement in the 1930s recession, we're calling you all to action to demand that housing be treated as the human right that we know that it is. We are demanding at the end of this eviction moratorium, no evictions, cancel rental debt and extend protections for renters. This will keep so many women safe now and into the future. Please join us. Please join us, Rahu and our allies, on the 28th of March at Parliament to make sure that our voice is heard and that our demands for fair, equitable housing and safety for all is heard and upheld. Housing is a human right important for women most of all. Thank you. I hope you join us in this fight. Women rise up globally against femicide. Celebrate International Women's Day online with activists from different nations speaking about the resistance to gender-based killings. Learn about the global movement against femicide from panellists bringing views from Australia, Mexico, the Confederate Colville tribes and the United States. Sunday the 14th of March at 11am Melbourne time. Hosted by Radical Women in Australia and the US. Email radicalwomen at optusnet.com.au That's radicalwomen at optusnet.com.au For information and registration details. Everyone is welcome. Radical Women is a 3CR supporter. G'day, my name is Margie Thorpe. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 on your dial. This is a public service announcement. going to talk about the hypocrisy of this Morrison government. The government, whenever its wrongdoings are exposed, we hear the same process as a response over and over. We'll commission a review, the review will be redacted, and we'll swipe away your access to freedom of information. speak this week to Catherine Wilkes from the No Cashless Welfare Card Australia campaign. There was, there was a post on the Say No to Cashless Welfare Card talking about how 13 people out of the 22 of Morrison's Liberal Cabinet are Pentecostal Christians. 
Post continues, um, quote, the implication that the poor are morally inadequate while the wealthy are solely by virtue of their wealth, morally superior, nicely intersects with the beliefs of Pentecostal Christian Prime Minister Scott Morrison's prosperity theology, which understands, quote, God's love and favour to be primarily expressed in wealth and material comforts. So if you are poor, God doesn't love you and you haven't mm -hmm. loved him enough either. And mm -hmm. the quote continues, the philosophy of the Inju card is the perfect marriage of neoliberal ideology and evangelical Christianity, both of which pathologize, criminalize and individualize poverty as a lifestyle choice with hardly a thought for underlying structural causes. And poverty becomes a question of character rather than a consequence of capitalist social organization. It's, quite a, it's a very powerful quote. And any comments on that? I didn't write it. It was another person, one of my team wrote it. It comes down to like Andrew Lamming thinks the card will fix people from taking part in practices that are sin. He used the word sinners and sin yesterday when he visited our page and trolled us. I fully agree with what was written there. It's like we're going in a time warp back to the 17th century. It's disgusting ideological views in regards to how they want to treat the poor and how they think about people. They're so busy belting people over the head because of the symptoms of their system that they don't want to fix the causes. So we'll ignore all the causes and we'll blame the victims of the symptoms of the causes and make it their fault when it's the government's fault and the system's fault the way it's designed over the last 20 years. I mean, this didn't happen overnight. This has taken a long time to formulate, to get the policies in place, to get the laws changed, to tweak everything in all the different legislations to enable this to take place. And then there's all the media over the last 30 years to groom and to, to get the Australian public to look at people on any form of payment in a down-your-nose attitude and you're lazy and you're just making excuses, do you know what I mean? And no matter what the facts and the truth are and the underlying causes are, that all goes out the window. It's the person's fault, they're bad character, they're lazy. It's all that remains is the rubbish, not the facts. And on the other side of the fence for those in power, as we said, 13 out of 22 of Morrison's Liberal Cabinet are Pentecostal Christians, they're fraternising with the wealthy corporations, they're ensuring that they themselves are far from poverty and they're very, very far on the other side of the fence of being tied up with a lot of capital wealth. Who are they to hold the moral high ground when we look at what's happening in Parliament this week, which is the wheels falling off the ground regards what's been going on with their staffers and their ministers, self-righteous, I don't know what the terminology is, but how dare they when... Everything they do, they're deflecting onto the poor and saying, you do this and you do that. When you think about, they go into Parliament drunk. They're taking advantage of interns, allegedly raping interns that are 16 years old. This is disgusting that we've got a government that is out there lining the pockets of their mates' businesses, selling every aspect they're supposed to be responsible for as a government to private entities so they don't have to do the work. They don't have to employ the staff and they don't have to take any responsibility, right? But they're lording it around and they're using coercive control on their own staff, which is abuse, and they're acting like they're Teflon-coated and it's a case of 
do as I say, not do as I do, because I'm going to do whatever I like. I'm going to rock into Parliament drunk. You down there who can't get a job, oh, as Pauline Hanson says, you've got no rights anymore, right? They love to deflect, don't they? He dumps that on a whole load of people and says, that's what we are, and then can't understand why we get offended. Well, I've got more morals in my little finger and my pinky nail than what they've got. This government has trained Australians to kick other Australians while them up there run amok and they spend like there's no tomorrow and they rip everybody off. Couldn't agree more. Next, we speak with Catherine Wilkes about the evaluation report for Adelaide University into the cashless debit card. Inside the evaluation, the cost of making the cashless debit card permanent was actually unclear? Not for publication. So from what we've been able to see, $255 million has been poured into this so far, right, since 2015. That's all the different contracts for Indu, for the card for providing the cards, the contracts with all the different stakeholders, the wages and all that sort of stuff. And each time they've extended it, like for instance, um, at one stage there was $70 million thrown in for Cape York to extend that for funding. So we worked it out, it was $255 million so far. However, they've never released the actual cost of what Kalgoorlie trial costs because that's commercial incompetence. Mm. And the same with the Hinkler trial, that's commercial incompetence. So nobody can get that. And then when they came through with the next block before December and the funding for it, they made it very clear that from now on in, all costings are not for public release. So we can't see how much more they're spending on this program as they expand throughout the whole of the Northern Territory. Right, so they're not letting anybody know how much this is costing. So when you look back at the basics card that's been going for 13 years, that's cost $1.9 billion so far. And all I see is First Nations people living in abject, worse than third world conditions with dirty water, no power, no housing. And it's never fulfilled one of its KPIs in 13 years, never fulfilled any of it. The cash just debit card is the same. It, it's not working. It can't work. The difference between the basics card and the cash debit card, though, basics card is controlled by Centrelink, not Indu. So people are still protected under the protections of payments act. They're still protected with their consumer laws. Their statutory rights under law are still protected. Their human rights, their privacy. Okay, with the cash debit card, all of that is gone. It's removed, and the power is transferred to Indu or the Northern Territory Credit Union when they come online, the power to control people without any legal recourse. It is apartheid. It's the cashless welfare card has been described very often as, as racist. And what, what are some of the overwhelming opposition to the card from First Nations groups that you're hearing ongoingly? Well, it is racist. And the only reason why you have the Hinkler trial is because we're the token whites to make it look good on paper by having 6,000 people that are non-Indigenous on the card, right, in the data sets makes it balance up because you've got 72% Indigenous people in Seduna, 82 to 92% people in East Kimberley are Indigenous, 40 to 60% of people in Kalgoorlie and the surrounds are Indigenous. 
And then you look at Henkler and it's, I think it's 4.1% Indigenous population. It works out 14% Indigenous. Most of them aren't on the card. Have any of the report recommendations from Adelaide University about the impact of the card gone into the impact on First Nations groups? It has gone into the impact. It hasn't improved anything in regards to mental health. There is a big section in the report regarding the stigma, the racism and the stigma. The majority of people across the whole lot have complained of the stigma, the shame, the way that they're being treated in the community. Lack of human rights to have basic autonomy for First Nations peoples to have input and have say about how their communities best function. Well, what I call the law elders didn't get a say in any of this. The law elders I've spoken to didn't get a say in any of this. They went to other chosen elders. I can't speak for First Nations people, but it's about self-determination and their agency and their ability to be able to work things out themselves. The Cape York program under the Families Responsibilities Commission was a, a good program for the basics card because it came with the family wraparound elders services and the person would be put on the basics card for 12 months. They would be given all of the assistance to help them and then once they'd achieved that goal, they got off the card. And then if they needed the assistance again, they could voluntarily go back on the card and then come off the card. That will be lost. Once the cashless debit card goes there, that will be lost because you don't have that freedom with Indu to do that. Indu's the private entity. They're not there for that. The basics card was controlled by Centrelink, but they didn't have that interference. That program, the FRC program, was the only model that worked because it was voluntarily put in place with full informed consent, unlike the cashless debit card, which is forced coercive control without a person's informed consent. Thanks again, Catherine, for all the work you do, which is evident by the amount of knowledge, the amount of reading and what you keep up with with what's happening with the cashless welfare card and your regular speaking on Over the Wall is greatly appreciated and we'll be speaking to you again in the future soon this year as we continue the fight. Thank you very much. No worries. A weak solidarity, Bricky team listener, when I'm sorry, apologies, a bitter disappointment for you, listener, because I know you've tuned in especially to hear the wisdom of the week that was analysis of the events surrounding Her Most Gracious Majesties and the gang of hangers-on who constitute the biggest old budgets in the land. But unfortunately, we need a lot more time than the week that was allows to cover the matters adequately. So important and critical are they to our lives. In fact... The Solidarity Brekkie team might consider devoting the whole program to the matter next week. One and a half hours might almost be long enough. No, can't help myself. One comment. An obvious working class bloke in London telling the camera what a tragedy that the son Archie had been deprived of his rightful inheritance because he can't have the, the title Prince. Poor little rich boy. Working class bloke feeling sorry for the gang that lives on the, in the lap of luxury on his taxes and the uh, taxes of his working class comrades. 
Her most gracious did say she was sorry the lot in California couldn't cope with the back-breaking life of a, quote, working royal. Surely working royal has to be one of the world's great oxymorons, and I won't make any obvious bad jokes about the moron bit, other than saying I won't make any anyway. On to the less important matters of the week, like the government providing more essential handouts to the caring business class, offset by cutting handouts to the non-caring business class who bludge on the public purse, ingrates. Expressed beautifully by great retailer Jerry Harvey for me and Harvey for me, while declining to return six million he had received in JobKeeper payments, mere pocket money for Jerry, pointing out that his ubiquitous retail chains doubling its profits, paying down debt and substantially raising its dividend to the hard-working shareholders, whom we can be sure would agree with Jerry that it would be reckless to hand back the six mil of corporate welfare, the way to deal with the undeserving poor expressed beautifully, as I say, with Jerry's very compassionate comment that the bad thing about giving money to the homeless is it helps a whole heap of no-hopers survive for no good reason. Good point, Jerry. Why should the homeless survive? Why non-survival is so much kinder, gets them out of their misery. And they may just be heaps of no-hopers because they cuddle up together to keep warm, which they wouldn't have to have to do if they didn't survive, didn't clog up footpaths and gutters, public spaces, where retailers can put tables and chairs and advertising boards, useful contributions to society. Some days we must all feel, as we pick up the morning print media, that the big world news of the day is Jerry and his highly profitable retail chain, with workers paid by the public purse. Welfare money that is not wasted on the undeserving. Until we realise, oh no, it's not exactly news. The, the media giants have simply sold their front pages and many, many inside pages to informing us about Jerry's great offers. And given the massive cost of all that advertising, which the record profits and dividends show is not a waste of Jerry's not so hard earned, imagine what those advertising millions could do for the homeless. No, no, better just let the no-hopers not survive. But as we said, Big Supremo Scuttlebin Morlashson, a.k.a. Scummo, was ensuring the survival of those who must survive, the airlines, tourist destinations, great retailers like Jerry and other worthy of corporate welfare, handing billions more to these needy causes and making it even more imperative that the government Scummo and co. slash the not billions on which dole budgets and the poorest of the poor are bludging are whooping it up level of non-corporate welfare allowing them to consolidate their poverty. People whom Jerry would place in the no right to survive category after all, how can those on non-corporate welfare as Jerry and airline supremo Alan Joyce Dick et al. would say afford to buy anything at Jerry's great retail beer month or Alan's airline standing on its own laissez-faire competition policy market forces uh, feet thanks to the public purse. The airline, which used to be our airline, was privatised by the then socialist government because the private sector was so much more efficient and the public sector couldn't afford the outlays needed to keep up with other free enterprise market forces, super efficient airlines. But 
must say I got a bit confused when Alan successfully lobbied that rival airlines not be introduced on the lucrative Pacific route because those airlines had the unfair advantage, Alan said, of being publicly owned, state-owned. More than a bit confused, I must say, but thankfully Alan has convinced the government that market forces require ongoing massive handouts from the public purse so he can prove the great benefits of efficiency far and away above the bloated inefficiency of the public sector. That wasn't really said, our listener. It's, it's what they say. Scuttle then was stunned when questioners suggested his handout to Allen was loaded toward marginal government seats, the latest collection to sports rorts and community grant rorts. Uh, like those two examples, he snapped, it is pure coincidence that all destinations eligible for half-price travel happen to be marginal government seats. Alan is delighted with the initiative and also responds testily to any suggestions the airlines will simply put up their fares, as if Alan and the other airlines would even think of such a tactic. No, Alan said he was thrilled that handing him heaps of government money would allow people in the allotted tourist destinations to retain their jobs, indeed create jobs. That's what it's all about, he said. See, nothing to do with his own profit. Uh, but Alan, you sacked at least 8,000 workers, even though you've got millions and millions in JobKeeper. Uh, sadly had to let go. Unless we made that hurtful decision to suddenly let go thousands of workers, thousands of the airline team, how could we have benefited from JobKeeper? Alan's only worry now is that bloody state governments don't do anything silly like put community health ahead of airline profits by closing borders if there are outbreaks of coronavirus. This is a constant worry for the poor caring business class who have so much to worry about, don't they? One of the norms of politics is simple and explains why politicians earn the not insubstantial money they're paid to ensure the lazy avaricious workers don't get non insubstantial amounts of money. Simple. Each side must oppose whatever the other side says or does. Unless, of course, you happen to be the Socialist Party under Supremo and would-be big Supremo Anthony all being easy when you agree with everything the other side says. So when Scuttle then makes a promise on how many millions of true blue Aussies will be vaccinated in record time, and when they miss the target by a mere few million vaccinations, he picks up the putting a brilliant spin on it award, telling us the vaccination program is not a race. How dare people expect us to vaccinate a few million people in record time just because we said we would vaccinate a few million people in record time. It's not a race, but we wonder if Scuttledon would think it was not a race if the boot was on the other foot, or more correctly, the syringe on the other arm, and a socialist government missed the target by a few million. It would suddenly be a race to the bottom, an attack on public health. Last week, we applauded number one train killer Angus Campbeltham, um, his contribution to International Women's Day by warning women train killer graduates not to go out after dark, not to drink after dark, and to look as ugly as possible. Whereas, on the other hand, the young train killer giant mine blokes can go out after dark, drink after dark, and if anything happens, the women involved will only have themselves to blame for being attractive and being out after dark and for drinking after dark, although only the 
being out after dark bit would be enough for it to be her, their own fault. That was presumably Angus's contribution to International Women's Day. Although in fairness, poor Angus did say he had been misinterpreted, picking up the, I'm not sure that that absolutely clears the matter up award on the way. My intent was to raise awareness and challenge the group to do what they can to mitigate risk. Nice try, Angus, but it, it's kind of what you said in the first place. Perhaps we've misinterpreted the misinterpreted clarification. Anyway, good news for Angus is I'm not sure that absolutely clears the matter up award is on its way. Another great and admired Troubler was he, another of our favourites, Lord Rupert of Wapping. Well, a former Troubler was he, now a US of the UN, of the US of the world citizen, honoured by Her Most Gracious Majesty. What a man. Lord Rupert's Wapping Sin normally only celebrates IWD post the day when it reports on women, violent working women somewhere across the globe involved in street violence and bashing the proverbial out of the poor, oh, sorry, a coppers. But this year he was full on. Page one, our 30 most influential women in sport. And inside the book, a Lord Rupert Award to all these women doing great things in their rural communities, providing jobs for the ungrateful. And a leading filthy rich or the filthy rich businesswoman saying we must use IWD to get more women into senior positions and onto company boards. A real solution to worker exploitation. Other than a boss is a boss is a boss. I'm lucky, a woman who asked not to be named, a worker in a suburban factory where she is paid a pittance, told the week that was. I'm really lucky because my immediate boss is a woman. A boss is a boss is a boss. Lord Rupert, while celebrating the day, seemed to miss the historical source of IWD as International Working Women's Day, but best we delete the working women bit like they created Moomba to replace Labor Day, to replace the workers' floats and marches with fun, 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 making sure crass politics is kept out of the event and, well, banned from being mentioned. Finally, Having mentioned the airline that used to be our airline, now the which bank which used to be our bank and following the which bank being sprung owing 53 million in underpayments, the finance sector evil union showed just how evil it is by slandering the bank with unrepentant wage thieves. This time, just because the bank wants to go straight to its cherished workforce and bypass the union in introducing individual agreements, getting rid of RDOs and other impediments to good business practice. And therein lies the caring bank employer's sensible motive. The union is a barrier to an attempt to simplify conditions and ensure agreements suit modern work practices. Oh, listener, if only the union would accept modern work practices. Realise that crippling work practices like wages and conditions are a product of another time. After all, the bank has to claw back that 53 mil underpayment some way. Good morning. Yeah, that's right, Kevin. Good on you, mate. Um, this is the week that was, and uh, you're back with Annie and Jordan on Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR. Now, you were talking mm-hmm. to the uh, Australian Unemployed Workers Union Yeah, this week. yesterday, actually. Um, I had a little chat with um, Jay, the national organiser, and uh, he brought along uh, Bailey, who had an interesting connection, because back when I did the uh, CUDL piece, Bailey was actually one of the brothers of um, someone that I interviewed 
dude called uh, Lockie. And um, look, they're just going to tell us a little bit about the week of action that's coming up. So uh, my name's Jay. I am the National Operations Co-Coordinator. Hi, I'm Bailey McCracken. Uh, my position is the National Division Secretary. I'm based in Melbourne. Um, I've been with the union since, well, I've been working in a title since May of 2020. I mainly help out with the day-to-day operations of the AUWU um, and ensure that um, our operations team and branches uh, have the support they need to organise. I've been in this role since September of last year. Mostly I'm just help branches uh, get their stuff together, make sure that they're organizing events and engaging the community. Before that, uh, I was just a member in the union, but I got real active and found myself in this position by chance, I guess. Since the start of the year, I've made up my goal to build the branch up a bit. I'm hoping for big things from the week of action. Did you want to discuss about what the plan for the week of action is? Basically, the the week of action um, that we're organising in collaboration with LIFE, which is Livable Incomes for Everyone and GetUp, is aimed at drawing awareness to the cuts on uh, that are coming on April 1. Um, but more broadly as well, obviously the Australian Unemployed Workers Union did you know, form and begin organising in 2014 around employment service providers and the injustice that is inherent in those structures as we found on the day that the cuts were announced, they were beginning to turn the screws even harder on unemployed people by beginning to again to ramp up job searches where they will be at 20 searches per month by July, um, but also introducing the being called the dob seeker line. So where, where employers will be able to call and dob in, you know, unemployed people uh, if they turn down a job which we know is just a, a load of shit because um, I think it was like 0.12% for the second half of 2019. 0.12% of people had turned down a job uh, that they were qualified for in the second half of you know uh, 2019. So it's quite irregular that you know an unemployed person is turning down a job with that kind of frequency in which the government is claiming anecdotally. They increased the payments during COVID because that was a crisis, but unemployment and uh, economic failings is a crisis in itself as well. You need to raise those payments. You need to bring about, you know, meaningful and sustainable employment. And the way they're going about it isn't in any way going to do that. Yeah, I think especially with regards to uh, Friday and the rally with other unionists, I read a quote recently that the government gives reforms with one hand and then takes them away with the other hand. And I think it just highlights that reforms such as the coronavirus supplement, although like amazing for the working class and unemployed people, will always kind of come and go. And it depends on having strong unions and grassroots organizing to be able to put these things into permanent practice. I took a lot of inspiration from Montagi. They've been a great branch and they've been very involved with the just the community day. What is the goal? Is it to mobilize the base is it to try and bring awareness to the general population? Is it to challenge conservative dogma? The, the idea is to essentially, you know, organise and mobilise a lot of unemployed people. Uh, currently, there are 1.23 million people in employment service providers right, uh, as of February 2021. Uh, those figures just came out yesterday. So that's 1.23 million people uh, who we're trying to, you know, give the awareness to that they don't have to be subjected to these awful conditions. 
the week of action is essentially seizing this unique opportunity in time because, you know, the union, as I mentioned before, has been around since 2014 and it's been doing a lot of work. But in terms of increasing support, the donations we've received, the interest that we've had from media and everyone else has only come about since the coronavirus epidemic and the economic um, situation that followed from that. And through that, trying to challenge, um, you know, pre-existing concepts of, you know, the material conditions in which people are subjected to. It's about beginning something. And that's what the week of action is. It's beginning to let people know that, no, you don't deserve this. No, you don't have to do that. Let's get together. Let's organize and let's sort this out because, you know, there's no point in going back to what was before because what was before was awful and it's only going to get worse if we allow it to just snap back so it's time that we get together and you know essentially fight back i think it's also about just showing how interconnected uh all the these different struggles are with like the eviction moratorium and the omnibus bill and the cuts to job seeker it just shows that all of it is an attack on the working class it's also a great chance to get involved in our local communities and take organizing in that sort of direction. And if we get out and go to these events, we can talk to one another and find out ways how to organize and how to have more of these events to, you know, hopefully bring about a meaningful discussion to just get rid of all this garbage once and for all. I was wondering if you could both briefly chat about what your own personal experiences with the union being unemployed or underemployed in some capacity have been through this time. When I first joined the union, I was very keen to get active and very involved with the union. Uh, I suppose that's how I went from being just a member to the National Division Secretary. I lacked a lot of experience, but I think I made up for that with hard work and dedication. I think I've talked to the branches and organized with them a lot to give members a real voice in the union and try to structure it a bit more democratically. Being involved with the AUW is pretty exciting in its own sense because even though it is, you know, a loosely organised structure, as Bailey pointed out, if you if you work hard and you put in the effort, you know, you can meet, you know, great people and do some pretty good things. And it's been a pretty weird year in itself in the sense of, you know, coming in in May, being given somewhat of a platform that you never really thought would come about. And that's in itself a bit shocking because, you know, you know, unemployed people more generally are just seen as outcasts or people who don't have anything to contribute. Policy decision is, you know, done about us and it's always without us. So that's like one of the mottos which we try and push. Nothing about us without us. You know, having the experience of being in and out of employment and in and out of payments, um, you know, since I was a kid coming from a single parent household, you know, I've been subjected to the social security system for some time. So I know it generally inside out. And the union, even though it is a bit of, you know, a loose structure, you do realize that everybody in that loose structure has great ideas, has really good intentions, and they all speak from experience. And that's what is really important um, in kind of changing the conversation that exists around unemployment in Australia. How do you respond to a typical middle-class, somewhat conservative voter who says that their tax should be spent fairly, those sorts of arguments. The biggest way that, you know, you can kind of 
change the narrative or kind of make people think about the whole doll bludger myth is actually by getting the voices of unemployed people front and centre to talk about their experience. Because in the media, where they're just saying that, you know, unemployed people are just far too lazy to go out and pick fruit, which, you know, we've been dubbing as cropsploitation, the complete opposite. They found that, you know, the figures from the Department of Employment show that 10,000 unemployed people took up work on as farm labour and 3,000 other unemployed people were turned down when applying for farm labour. So it's not like, they're, you know, this myth of the, the lazy unemployed doll bludger is just simply that. It's a myth. No one can live below half the poverty line, for starters. You know, it's just, it's just impossible. You can't afford rent. You can't afford to feed yourself. You can't afford medical bills. You're like, you name it. People want to believe that there is like this fighting spirit in themselves and that in every single unemployed person, they are survivors. So it's about putting that narrative forward that these, this system is unfair. These people are survivors and they will fight to do anything to get by. To further that as well is, you know, pointing out the inherent contradiction within the government's narrative by this, you know, we need to be conservative with our money when they hand over billions of dollars in, you know, an economic and global pandemic to employment service providers to literally do nothing. They created this market. You know, there's no such thing as a free market within like the employment service providers, like they intervene and they're still currently intervening with these employment service providers to keep them afloat. They're multinationals, they're domestically owned by billionaires, and they are intervening to keep them afloat. And it's a waste of money. It provides no jobs. We know these groups don't get people jobs. People get their own jobs. If you give people opportunities to improve them, like to give them the conditions like giving them money to house and feed themselves, they will contribute to the community. Yeah, I remember when Scott Morrison was telling people instead of living like a really hard life on um, welfare to just get a job and this like sort of simplistic reductionism of like how hard it is to find jobs. There's not really that many jobs available and you end up applying for like over 100 jobs and getting only a handful of interviews work for the doll as you said that's kind of, you know people not only do people have to do it at the 12 month mark they have to do it um now at the six month mark as well under new changes and the the other thing that was like slyly announced at the australian financial review forum um by the prime minister the other day was that they will be looking at trying to force unemployed people out into the fields using mutual obligations uh, to fill these labour force gaps in uh, rural markets, which, you know, without getting into the policy of, you know, the, the Department of Social Security is somewhat impossible. The fact that they're, you know, ratcheting up and going really, really hard is just giving us more and more material to organise around. For starters, you don't have to do work for the doll in the sense that, yes, if you don't do it, you will be penalised, but there are other options. You can do volunteering um, within, you know, local community groups if you find it yourself. It's harder, but you can do it. So it's about getting out there and using this focus that's been put on us to to spread awareness to other people, there are only going to be more people for us to be able to work with, um, to, you know, share our knowledge and spread the information that we have in order to mobilise and expand and build more and more campaigns in the lead up to the election when it comes about. Yeah, well, so I think there's two main points there, which is um, uh, building up like trade unionism, especially with the rise of uh, RAFU, Retail Fast Food Workers Union, with like a real radical roots there. 
and taking the trade union movement back to what it, it really used to be in like the 60s and 70s. And then there's also the grassroots organizing aspect. I'd like to see the union uh, increase its capacity to be able to provide more for unemployed people like materially. Currently, we have the um, advocacy hotline. And I'd like to see us expand more. You know, the, the discussion is that like it's going to become much more of like a continued kind of movement. And that's what we want to try and focus on is to bring about more, you know, events like rallies um, and bring about more cooperation between the pre-existing trade union movement and unaffiliated groups. And but, you know, more importantly, to bring the focus on groups like, you know, the AUWU and RAFU and Rahu to show that you can get about organizing with grassroots memberships and you don't have to be a part of this kind of pre-existing club that's tied to partisan politics. It's about organizing and, you know, expanding the current operations that we're doing, like with our advocacy line by doing more training sessions, for example, and letting people know what their rights are and teaching them how to, you know, kind of fight back to their job agencies, which once you do, and once you learn how to do, it's really, really, it's really simple. Like it's not that hard. Um, and that's what, you know, is going to be after the week of action once we get all this kind of attention. Cool. That sounds really exciting, actually. What's actually going on for the week of action what can people go and do? How can we actually get out there and be a part of this? On the Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday, there's some online sort of stuff organized nationally. And you can head to the local Facebook page for more information about those events. Um, but I think most importantly is the Wednesday and Friday because it's uh, in-person organizing. So Wednesday is a community day outside of uh, Max Employment in Brunswick. It's on 605 Sydney Road. We'll be there from 12 p.m. to 4 p.m. Handing out pamphlets. Uh, Community Union Defence League is coming along too because they provide uh, like hot beverages, uh, maybe some food too. Uh, and just really interacting with the community to build up our volunteers and get more involved with the local community. Um, so for the 19th of March rally, that's going to be held at Treasury Gardens at 12 p.m. It's obviously a COVID-safe event, so mask up, bring some sanitizer, and keep your distance. Pretty much everything we're doing uh, Australia-wide, um, you can find on our website for the week of action, which is 80aday.org. So that's 80aday.org. Um, and yeah, obviously it has stuff about what we're doing in, you know, in Canberra and New South Wales and stuff, but it will also have information of what's going to be happening in Melbourne. There you go. So the week of action coming up. Absolutely. Yeah, it's big deal. Um, and just to reiterate, so there's online events happening at 80aday.org. Um, those will be on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Now, on Wednesday, there is the community day, which I'll be going along to. So say hi if you run into me. Um, and that is going to be outside of Max Power Employment in Brunswick. It is on uh, Sydney Road. I believe it's in the 600s. I can't remember if it's 605 or 629. In any case, it's in Brunswick. We will be there from 12 p.m. to 4 p.m. Um, there's going to be hot food. There, we're just going to be engaging with members of the community. And then we've got the big rally. And that rally is going to be on Friday. It is at 12 p.m. Treasury Place. Yep. And the first half of it is primarily going to be speeches and, and um, mostly getting people on board who have had lived experiences. And then beyond that, um, I, I actually can't remember. I yeah, believe they're moving it's going down to be a to march. The, yeah. yeah, they're going to move down to the um, 
Fair Work Commission. Yeah, that's which, right. Yeah, which absolutely. Which is at the bottom of, um, yeah. I think it's Russell Street or Exhibition Street. I yeah. can't remember which one. It's a big day. Get out there. Seriously, this is very, very important. We've got to mobilise while we have a chance. All right. We've, we've got to go. The Asia-Pacific people are... are Bearing ba- down on us. <laughs> <laughs> so we better be off. Uh, might yeah. see you at the uh, March, March for Justice on Monday at State Library Steps, 12 o'clock. Absolutely. Uh, do you want to take us out with um, May 16, Lagwagon? Yeah. Oh, hold on, hold on. Anything no. of the sort? Let's see. I was going to do something else, but okay. That's yeah. what we're going to do. All right, sure. See you next week, Annie. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.